Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, it's Brendan O'Neill here. I wanted to let you know about an event that is taking place in New York City on the 29th of January. It's called Should We Be Free to Hate? I will be moderating it. We will be looking at the whole question of hate speech and whether hate speech is free speech with Nadine Strossen, the law professor and former president of the American Civil Liberties Union, and Paul Coleman of the Alliance Defending Freedom. Those two will be joining me to have a free, frank, open discussion about hate speech and free speech. That's at the New York Law School in the evening on the 29th of January. It's a free event, so for more information and to register, go to spiked-online.com and I hope to see you there. Now, on with the show. One of the things I always ask people who've also been publicly shamed, you know, when we see each other, we gravitate naturally towards one another. It's like a kind of secret club of the deplorables. One of the first questions I always ask is, you know, did you lose any weight? And the answer is always yes, about two stone. Um, and when you are at the centre of one of the storm diet, it must be some kind of primitive survival instinct kicking in. You know you're going to have to run away from this mob. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a monthly podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. This month I am delighted to be joined by Toby Young. Toby is a columnist, an author and an educationalist. He founded the West London Free School and he was director of the New Schools Network, which is a charity that helps with the founding of free schools in the state school sector in England. He has written for numerous publications and he is currently a columnist for The Spectator. He is also the London Associate Editor for Quillette magazine. He is author of the memoir How to Lose Friends and Alienate People about his time as a contributing editor at Vanity Fair in New York. In the film version, Toby was played by Simon Pegg. And the film led the Irish Times to publish an article with the headline, Just How Horrible is Toby Young? And I'm pleased and relieved to say that the Irish Times came to the conclusion that Toby Young is not very horrible at all. Toby, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brendan. It isn't often I kick off a podcast conversation by asking my guest about the falling apart of aspects of his or her life. (laughs) But I feel with you, it's kind of necessary. You wrote a piece shortly before Christmas about the impact that being shamed and hounded online has had on your life, uh, uh, even leading to a decline in Christmas cards and party invitations and various other things. And even I, despite being someone who has always found social media to be a quite ugly, abrasive environment, even I was shocked by the response to your piece. So Let's start with the issue of public shaming. Uh, Around about this time last year, you were in the eye of a Twitter storm over your appointment to the Office for Students. Some people discovered old tweets of yours, uh, jokey, silly, sexist tweets, one about breasts and a few things like that. 
And within days, you were out on your ear. So can you, to begin with, rec- recount what happened and what that was like? Yes. Um, so uh, I was appointed to this new regulator. It's a regulator of English universities um, uh, called the Office for Students, as you said. And it was, a, it was announced on, uh, at a minute after midnight on January the 1st. And um, the Guardian um, broke the story and, and their headline was something like Toby Young to lead or help lead new universities regulator. And all these sleuths on Twitter concluded that the government were trying to slip this news out at a particular busy time because they didn't want anyone to focus on it. So they weren't going to let them get away with that. And so I immediately started trending on Twitter. And it was all these people saying how I wasn't a fit and proper person to serve on the board of this new regulator. Um, And they made it sound as though this was a kind of huge, you know, cherry that I'd been handed by my cronies in the government, not quite realising that actually it was a voluntary position, um, which involved, you know, serving as a non-executive director on a board, um, which was going to meet, I think, four times a year. Um, uh, you know, it was it was something one does out of a sense of public duty, uh, not because, you know, you're getting paid lots of money to do it, or it's going to give you kind of uh, all sorts of powers that you've been seeking. I mean, it was it was sort of ludicrous that mm. uh, people thought, how dare the government <laughs> give this fantastic, brilliant job <laughs> to this kind of reprobate? Yeah. Shouldn't they give it to someone much more worthy? Well, you know, not that many people want to do these jobs. You know, it's not a huge amount of fun sitting yeah. in a committee room in Whitehall for kind of three or four hours while you discuss kind of one paragraph in a kind of, you know, set of guidance. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's pretty boring, really. Um, Anyway, um, and I wasn't going to help lead this regulator. It was wildly uh, exaggerated. Uh, But anyway, so there was this sort of pile on and and people immediately set to work kind of uh, plowing through uh, everything I'd ever written dating back to um, 1987. So um, I wrote an essay in um, a, a collection of essays called The Oxford Myth, in 87. And I took on the uh, inflammatory subject of class at Oxford. Um, And um, someone had um, quote mined this piece and made it sound as though I was this horrific snob. And um, Paul Nascent, this kind of journalist turned arch Corbynista, um, tweeted that the reason I'd been given this job on this new regulator was because the Tories wanted to stop working class children going to university <laughs> and that's why they'd appointed me because that was their agenda I mean it was all kind of ludicrous and you sort of thought when when people were saying these things well do they really believe them or are they just mm. pretending to believe them in order to score political points and it's always hard to tell them perhaps they don't know themselves um, but you know the offense archaeologists as yes. um, Freddie DeBoer yeah. this American essayist has called them um, uh, you know were busy at work at one point uh, Fraser Nelson uh, my editor at the Spectator um, uh, wrote a piece defending me and he pointed out that um, in the Spectator's archives um, the top ten most searched for articles were all articles by me dating back to 1822 um, <laughs> I mean it was extraordinary and it was all kind of you know my detractors searching, scouring, you know, the internet for reasons to um, discredit me. Uh, I'll give one more example. I won't bang on for it for too long. But um, someone dug up a piece I'd written in The Spectator in 2001 
um, and it was um, praising the British Board of Film Classification for being a bit more liberal in its attitude mm. towards pornography. Um, and I sort of, you know, made the kind of standard libertarian argument that in countries with more draconian pornography laws like Saudi Arabia, there isn't necessarily less sexual assault um, and the links between liberal pornography laws and sex crimes is extremely tenuous, very hard to stand up, the evidence is threadbare, and so forth. A fairly reasonable mm -hmm. kind of libertarian case for uh, liberalizing uh, censorship laws around pornography. Um, and and the, the um, chief sub at The Spectator, bit of a wag, had written the headline, Confessions of a Porn Addict, which I felt was, you know, didn't quite do, do the seriousness <laughs> of my argument justice at the time, but nonetheless, you know, took it on the chin. It was quite funny. Um, so someone dug up this article in the archives, screen grabbed that headline, stuck it on Twitter, yeah. and literally within 20 minutes... Headline in the Evening Standard, pressure mounts on Theresa May as university czar confesses to being porn addict. And it was like, yeah, confesses, not really. And it was, you know, in 2001. Yeah. And then the Times followed up the same day with an almost identical headline. And... Um, uh, and they, as you said, dug up all these various... Um, uh, uh, inappropriate things I tweeted mm. kind of late at night, stupid things I'd said, which I wish I hadn't tweeted. But uh, nonetheless, you know, they were out there and people dredged them up. Um, and um, uh, in the end, um, you know, there was a petition calling for my head, which I think was signed by almost a quarter of a million people. Um, there was a kind of press pack on my doorstep, kind of, uh, you know, um, monstering my wife every time she tried to leave the house. My daughter... 14 stopped going to school um and uh i was also running as you said in your intro another charity at that time um which uh was you know very dependent on the goodwill of the government uh in various for various things including you know most of its budget um so i felt that the prudent thing uh, would be to step down uh, which i duly did um but um i perhaps naively thought that stepping down and apologising would draw a line mm. under the whole affair. Uh, but actually, <laughs> that turned out to be a mistake. And I, I then lost a number of other positions. So I had to step down as a Fulbright commissioner. I'd served on the Fulbright commission since 2014. Um, I was um, defenestrated as an honorary fellow of Buckingham University, which was disappointing because Buckingham, as you know, was set up by Margaret Thatcher. You would have thought, if any, but no. I, what else did I have? I, I eventually had to step down from... Um, my job running the free schools charity and I also in the end stepped down from the board of the charity I'd set up which these four free schools I'd helped co-found sat within so I lost five positions but that, uh, I think one of the one of the dark ironies of that whole affair which I thought was a pretty repulsive example of the the trend for public shaming was precisely that you had done a far greater amount of work for education particularly for underprivileged people uh, students than any of your critics um, but I want to come on to education in a second yep. the other thing I was going to ask you in relation to that um, thing that episode I think offense archaeology is a very good description of this where people go digging and digging and digging to find some dirt that they can throw at you in order to shame you and hound you and embarrass you and and ideally get you sacked um, but one thing I'm interested in p people will often say sometimes these twitch hunters will have a moment of regret a few months down the line um, and say, oh, we didn't mean for all that to happen. It, it, Gavin McInnes, who I'm not particularly a fan of, but he said it's akin to a bull in a china shop saying, oh, what happened to all these plates? You know, they kind of start this Twitter storm mm -hmm. and then things spin out of control and then they kind of backtrack slightly. 
But what I find interesting about the analysis of Twitter storms like the one you suffered is that people will often say, well, this proves that there is a problem with technology because everyone puts it out there. Everything that you write is online now. You don't have to actually go to the British Library to find it. You can tweet at midnight and it's there and people can see it. But I often wonder if the technological explanation is actually a cover for the far greater cultural dynamic behind these twitch ons and the motive behind them which seems to me that technology might facilitate it but there is a cultural dynamic there's a cultural motive which seems to me to be one of extreme censoriousness and vindictiveness and bitterness um, all of which I thought were really well illustrated in the attacks on you. Yeah, I think, um, well, I think you make an interesting point. Um, or it's an interesting question as to whether people who participate in these mobbings ever experience, um, you know, pangs of guilt. Mm. Um, and um, I've yet to encounter anyone <laughs> who, who has said to me, Gosh, I don't know what, what I don't know what came over me. Um, uh, I was overcome with bloodlust, but actually, you're a decent guy, and I'm sorry. Um, no, that hasn't happened. Uh, I think one of the reasons people don't, you know, feel pangs of conscience about participating in these pylons is because so many people participate in them. So there's yeah. a dilution of personal responsibility. It's a bit like, you know, the conspiracy to murder. Julius Caesar, if there are, you know, yeah. if it's not just one person sticking the knife in, but, you know, multiple people, then that makes it easier to do. Um, uh, so I think a, a philosopher actually wrote an interesting piece about how responsibility can be diluted in this way. And that provides people with a license to be much crueler and more yeah. sadistic than they would be if it was just them acting alone uh, and they were just causing the damage inflicted themselves as a single individual. Mm -hmm. um, but I also think that, um, you know, the human mind um, is, uh, you know, ingenious at furnishing itself with pretexts um, to be sadistic and cruel and participate in these kinds of uh, ritual mobbings. Um, someone who was um, publicly shamed uh, for completely spurious reasons um, uh, wrote a really good piece in a a Christian magazine called First Things, a woman mm. called Helen. And she was shamed by her boyfriend, whom she'd just broken up with on a C-SPAN broadcast. So he um, uh, kind of launched into this rant against what a terrible oh, yeah. human being she was because she'd broken up with him. And, um, and it, you know, it went viral. And for years, this dogged her. She went off to, she moved to Australia and wrote a, you know, joined a think tank, wrote a very serious report. And when it was discussed in the Australian parliament, an MP brought up the fact that she dumped her boyfriend. It was just ridiculous. But anyway, she said that that when people have furnished themselves with what they think of themselves, what they think of as a decent pretext for piling on, then, you know, the floodgates open. And there is after that no restraint, no pang of conscience about what they'll allow themselves to say. Absolutely. And 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 it can target the most thoroughly decent people. The person you're talking about is Helen Andrews, yep. who now uh, who I worked with in Australia for a brief period of time uh, at the think tank, uh, the Center for Independent Studies, and that has followed her around. Uh, this footage of her boyfriend, um, her then boyfriend, slagging her off on TV uh, in a, in sometimes a fairly misogynistic way. You know, who is mm -hmm. this woman who mm -hmm. is so awful that she had to be dumped on TV? Um, I think one of the things I'm uh, I often wonder about in relation to this is is the motive 
behind these attacks. Now, uh, I've heard many different explanations. Some people say it's part of human nature, going back you know, millennia to... Well, before we get to that, can, can we just, just want to make one further point? One of the differences, I think, between um, uh, being publicly shamed today in the present environment and being publicly shamed um, 50 years ago is that, uh, take someone like Profumo. So Profumo, involved in a sex scandal resigned, was publicly shamed, and uh, rehabilitated himself by going off to work at Toynbee Hall, not far from here, um, for you know decades, mm. until he was more or less completely rehabilitated. I think he was given an honour, you know, uh, he was part of the kind of social circle of, of, of the Queen and so forth. Um, but to, uh, one of the reasons he was able to, one of the reasons he, he had that avenue available to him is partly because we were a more forgiving Christian culture back then, but partly, I think, because the papers could collectively decide that someone had been punished enough yeah. and they weren't going to dredge up their sins over and over again or every yeah. time they raised their head. But now, um, you know, with social media, every time, no matter how far in the past the particular scandal or the misdemeanors they've accused of uh, were committed every time they raise their head the pile on um, uh, repeats itself yeah. um, and I think it makes it very difficult for anyone who's uh, been subject of um, a public shaming now to rehabilitate themselves yeah. they're just not allowed to there isn't a mechanism by which they can atone for their sins expiate their guilt I completely agree and I think um, one of the things that worries me most about the culture we live in at the moment is the calling into question of rehabilitation itself the possibility of it the the wisdom of it people now particularly in relation to me too which is very different from your example because you didn't actually harass or alarm or abuse anyone but in even in relation to something like me too you can see this um suspicion and cynicism about mm -hmm. the entire idea of rehabilitation if you look at someone like louis ck mm -hmm. who was cast out into the wilderness for a year or so when he confessed to having done mm -hmm. some slightly dodgy but much dodgier things. than anything i ever did much, I should point much out. dodgier than anything <laughs> you ever did i think that's really important to establish <laughs> um but i think across the board whether it's someone who just said things that people disagree mm -hmm. with which is your case or did things which we can all agree yes. are regrettable but surely uh, you can be rehabilitated afterwards it across the board there is this yeah. instinct to leave people out in the cold forever and ever but uh, but something you just said reminded me of of the question uh, that i wanted just to put again which is um so so you say that you know the social media phenomenon means that um, rehabilitation is always put off because you can always be constantly, instantly reminded of the thing Toby Young said in 2008 or whatever it might be. But behind the technological capacity to put off the possibility of rehabilitation, there is also, I think, a broader, deeper yes. cultural discomfort with any idea of forgiveness, with yeah. any idea of openness or freedom or, or, or generosity. Um, and I, I wonder... So, so something I think about a lot is is what is the motive behind these mass mm -hmm. mobbings, these mass yeah. houndings, and I think a part of it is this sense of an urge for moral distinction. People need to morally distinguish themselves. Uh, virtue signalling, I think, is sometimes too weak a phrase to describe what's going on, but there is this uh, desire to demonstrate your own virtue and decency and goodness, and and in a time in which 
the old political, religious, traditional frameworks are kind of falling apart. Yes. You need to find other means through which to do mm -hmm. that. And so mm -hmm. I think significant numbers of people do it by saying, I hate Toby Young. Yeah. So there's this, they, they need demons yep. and they will find them anywhere and, and they will keep them as demons for as long as possible because it benefits them. Yeah. So Jonathan Haidt has written um, about this. He wrote about it in The Righteous Mind. He's written and talked about it elsewhere. It's essentially a tribal impulse, which is an ineradicable part of human nature. And um, part of creating a tribe sense of identity um, and molding it, molding it into a kind of cohesive social unit uh, involves um, uh, dividing people, sorting people into members of the in-group and members of the out-group. And uh, members of the out-group um, are always um, cast as demons, as people who have transgressed um, the sacred principles upheld by members of the in-group. Um, and in primitive societies um, uh, characterized by pagan forms of religious worship, uh, you know, being designated as a member of the out-group can be fatal, yeah. you know, um, uh, uh, even in some Christian societies. So we, you know, the history of Christianity is littered with um, uh, uh, people who've been designated as members of the out-group being um, treated appallingly, in some cases tortured and killed. Um, uh, uh, but I think one of the um, uh, benefits of organized religion, um, and not just Christianity, but take Christianity, is that um, it did devise this mechanism for reconciliation between members of the in-group and the out-group. Mm. And it provided an, a, 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 a portal through which someone who had been pushed out by the in-group for transgressing uh, against the innocent could be allowed back in, yeah. could be rehabilitated. So forgiveness played that part yeah. and that plays a central part in Christianity as it does in some other organized religions. What, what I think is, is, is um, uh, different about um, uh, something like the social justice movement, I mean, I think it would, be, it would be inaccurate to say it's just social justice warriors who yeah. engage in this kind of tribal sorting and public shaming, but certainly 80, 85% of the public shamings are uh, you know, people being shamed by the left, often, you know, people on the left being shamed mm. by other people, other members. Of, but no, nonetheless, so one of the characteristics of the social justice movement is that it's inherited this uh, vernacular of innocence and transgression. It engages in this tribal sorting. Um, but uh, and it's and it's inherited many aspects, not just that aspect, but many aspects of the kind of Puritan Protestant tradition, but without any sort of device for the rehabilitation yeah. of people who've been branded, uh, othered in this way. Um, so there isn't an any once once you've been once you've been painted, yeah. you know, once you've been targeted, you know, that's it. You know, you're never going to be allowed back into their charm circle. They're never yeah. going to regard you as a fully human person deserving of the rights and respect um, and the due process that 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 that. that a member of the in-group is. I think that's a really important point. And I find that so much of modern supposedly progressive politics feels quite religious, but without the good qualities of religion. So without redemption, yeah. without the forgiveness, without the idea that 
if you uh, deny yourself certain luxuries in this life, you'll have a good life next time. Not all that stuff, which had something yes. going for it, has been completely pushed aside. And instead, it's just the punishment. It's just the casting out with yes. no option of ever coming back. But I think, um, so, so are you saying that some of these, I mean, later on in this discussion, we will come on to the question of how much of human behavior can be uh, defined in, in kind of evolutionary terms mm -hmm. um but uh, are you suggesting that some of these people who think they're super progressive because they rage against toby young when he's on uh, the today program or because they constantly berate people who are roger scruton for example mm -hmm. who they think is an inappropriate person to advise the government on housing they consider themselves progressive but you think that they are actually demonstrating some fairly primitive instincts Yes. in how they behave. <laughs> yeah, I think that's. Uh, <laughs> it, I mean, I think it's 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 not just um, that they're um, they're allowing these primitive, atavistic, tribal feelings to um, dictate their actions. And there is something about social media which kind of provides a gateway yeah. for those atavistic impulses to express themselves. I think maybe because people are using their hands and there's something quite aggressive about punching <laughs> or pressing keys uh anyway we could talk about that um but um it's also you know there's also something deeply authoritarian about it mm. um I, I mean you know during the height of um uh when i was being uh mobbed um you have this kind of fear that what is that this kind of frenzy this blood crazed bloodlust frenzy that's uh, that's that w w that's taking place on Twitter and elsewhere um, will spill over mm. into real life, mm -hmm. and this and, and you and, and you kind of have the feelings that you imagine uh, the, the central character in Apocalypto, that wonderful kind of fried brain Mel Gibson picture, um, uh, when he's being pursued by a kind of blood crazed mob through the rainforest you know and he looks absolutely terrified uh, and you can and that you you have, you feel that kind of primordial terror yeah that you know you've been you've been you've been targeted by a mob and they want to rip you limb from limb and you know a thousand years ago 500 years ago that's what would have happened yeah um and you kind of hope that the kind of um barriers of civilization the kind of protective barrier around you which stops mobs tearing you apart william golding wrote interestingly about this in lord of the flies mm -hmm. and it's about the kind of gradual shrinking of that boundary that yeah. civilization protects you with uh, uh, to nothing yeah um uh, you 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 have this kind of terror that it is going to spill over um and um you know at the moment it hasn't um yeah. and often people think you know you snowflake all this kind of whiny self-pitying crap about the penalties you've paid for being mobbed you know what about people who really suffer um and you know there's an element of truth in that um it's unpleasant um and it can be extremely traumatic and you know in some cases people who've been mobbed um, have ended up committing suicide mm. so uh, a woman called jill messick who i knew very slightly um one of the producers of mean girls um, she was named by Rose McGowan yeah. as um, someone who'd been complicit in Harvey Weinstein's crimes. Um, she had worked at the agency that represented Rose McGowan when Rose McGowan claimed she was first sexually assaulted by Harvey Weinstein. She had confided in Jill um, and 
nothing happened as far as Rose McGowan was concerned. There were no repercussions for Harvey. And then sometime later, Jill got a job at Miramax. So Rose McGowan put two and two together and made five and thought there must have been some kind of behind the scenes hush up for which she was being rewarded, which actually turned out to be complete nonsense. And so she was mobbed, not just on social media, but in the mainstream media too, uh, when Rose McGowan named her in this way. You know, what could be worse than a man who enables a sexual predator? A woman, you know, she was a quizzling, worst kind of moral cowardice. Um, And uh, she decided that she wasn't going to publicly defend herself because she didn't want to cast doubt on the veracity of other aspects of Rose McGowan's story and make it harder for other victims of Harvey and others to come forward. So she kept stum. But she, in the end, found the distance between the person she was portrayed as being uh, by these people piling on and the person she really is so great that in the end she took her own life. By my calculation, I think there have been four Me Too related suicides. Another one is Carl Sargent, and I, uh, the Labour MP in, in, in Wales. And I think um, people sometimes underestimate the impact, not simply that accusations can have, which is the case of Carl Sargent, but also simply finding yourself dragged into the eye of a storm, being mm-hmm. named, being shamed in the way that she was. The other example, uh, this is a very different woman called Brenda Leyland, who in 2015 was exposed as one of the people who goes on Twitter and says that the McCanns murdered Madeline, mm-hmm. which is a conspiracy area I find pretty repulsive. Mm-hmm. Um, she was part of that, and she used to often express her conspiracy theories. She was named and shamed in the media, and within 24 hours she had, had killed herself. People underestimate just how destructive the culture of public shaming can be, particularly when it's aimed at people who wouldn't normally be in the spotlight and don't have that kind of mm-hmm. the, the, the skills or the raw materials mm-hmm. to deal with that kind of attention. But I think um, one thing I was going to ask you about was the follow-up piece that you wrote yeah. uh, uh, just before Christmas about... Um, the impact that it had on your life. And it was a fairly short column, Mm -hmm. right? And it was about how your number of Christmas cards, that was the thing everyone really picked up on. I don't mean to laugh. I know it's (laughs) it's not very nice, but that's the thing people picked up on and people... Well, no, you're perfectly right to laugh. It was supposed to be a self-deprecating right, of course. You know, paragraph in the column. It yes. wasn't supposed to be, oh, woe is me. Yeah. Take pity, please. And and, don't, well, don't that's the, the tone of the column is actually a fairly self-deprecating yeah. one. It's not woe is me uh, in, in substance. But, but I was surprised, uh, maybe I'm naive, but I was surprised that even the response to that piece was another outburst of, you know, screw this guy who yeah. gives a crap. Um, he's awful. He's terrible. We hate him and we should hate him. So I, I just thought that that I think was even in some ways a better example of the kind of culture we're talking mm-hmm. about, which is this primitive, censorious, shrill, um, morally distinguishing culture of uh, where you have to destroy someone and you have mm-hmm. to keep on destroying them in kind of slow motion repeat motion again and again and again in order to make yourself feel good and important Uh, i thought the attacks on you for that piece were in some ways an even better illustration of that than what happened to you in january last year because it just made me think okay so forgiveness is not an option is that what Mm -hmm. they're saying Mm -hmm. well i was um quite surprised that um people reacted on twitter Um, so negatively to that piece and it immediately kind of got trending Um, I think one of the reasons I started that piece by talking about how different Christmas was last December to the previous December um, 
was um, partly because I wanted to uh, set up the remainder of the piece, which was actually counterintuitively about the benefits of being defenestrated from public life. Um, and so, of course, I wanted to slightly exaggerate in a self-deprecating way the penalties mm. of being publicly shamed. Um, uh, but and, and, and actually, you know, there are some benefits, um, uh, believe it or not. One of the things I always ask people who've also been publicly shamed, and, you know, I now, when we see each other, at social gatherings, we gravitate naturally towards one another. It's like a kind of secret club of the deplorables. Um, uh, but one of the first questions I always ask is, you know, did you lose any weight? And the answer is always yes, right. about two stone. Um, and when you are at the centre of one... <laughs> the Twitter I mean, I storm diet. It must be some kind of um, primitive um, survival instinct kicking in. You know you're going to have to run away from yes. this mob through fit. the primeval forest. So <laughs> you naturally start shedding pounds so you can run faster. Um, but um, So that's one of the benefits. You lose weight. Um, you suddenly find yourself with a lot more time on your hands. Mm. I found, actually, um, that since it all happened to me, my ability to appreciate music has um, become much, much better. Um, so now when I listen to a piece of music like, you know, one of Mozart's violin concertos or Beethoven symphonies, it moves me. I feel like kind of, it, it, I can, it makes me feel kind of um, ecstatic mm. and moved in a way that it didn't before, hadn't for a very long time. And um, I think it, it, partly that must be to do with the impact of the trauma. Maybe it's a symptom, I don't know, of mm. post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, but it actually also feels as though, you know, when you're busy when you have a really involving, time-consuming career, you don't have much time to focus on the kind of small, quotidian things in your life. You're, I mean, I was the chairman of this, the CEO of that, for 10, 15 years, always spinning plates in my head, thinking about the next meeting, how to put out this particular fire, how to reconcile a, you know, a burgeoning dispute between two board members or whatever it might be always you know living in my head and never in the present yeah. um and so the opportunity to kind of live in the present again has actually been a benefit mm. well that's a really interesting point I, I, I the other thing i was going to ask you about just on this issue before we move on to the other issues this might help to connect them is um i think a lot of this hounding and 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 um uh, these attacks these online attacks on people who have transgressed in some way whether it's a minor transgression or a major transgression really speaks to a broader or speaks to and fuels a broader debasement of public life and public debate and political debate in particular as we are recording this there is this huge fury about the um rather stupid self-styled yellow vest protesters outside parliament who are mm. continually trying to drown people out and branding them nazis like anna Subri, even though she is very clearly not a nazi um and and everyone seems quite shocked by this, but to me it makes perfect sense as an extension of the kind of culture that has been building over the past few years, mm -hmm. where if you are a feminist who criticizes aspects of transgenderism, you are denounced as a turf and cast out. If you are uncomfortable with same-sex marriage for religious reasons, you're a homophobe and you shouldn't speak on mm -hmm. campuses. If you are worried about mass immigration, you're a xenophobe instantly and, and that's it. Your, your career, your reputation is going to be called into question all the time. So there's this continual instinct to brand everyone a fascist, mm -hmm. even though they clearly aren't, to write them off as phobic mm -hmm. or deranged or problematic in some way. 
So it makes perfect sense to me that we're now reaching a point, it seems, where that's uh, the hard right is embracing some of those mm. tactics that were developed largely by the left and largely by SJWs. Yeah. And it's becoming this kind of um, very key part of public life. But what, what it means is that public life just becomes increasingly ugly and public debate becomes increasingly impossible. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show, It would be great if you could give us a rating and maybe even a review. That is a really good way to help new listeners discover the show. Let's talk about the intellectual dark web. That's where I want to take the Mm -hmm. the question. So I I think the intellectual dark web is very interesting. I think it has a lot of good qualities. Um, A lot of my friends are in the intellectual dark web. But one problem I have with it is what I see as its increasing... Uh, not necessarily reliance upon, but it's increasing movement towards a kind of explanation of human behavior that is a bit naturalistic or evolutionary or um, genetic. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I wanted to put that to you because one of the things that has been said about you, which is incorrect, is that you're a eugenicist. So you can explain to us why yes. that's not true. But I think one of the things that's said about you, which is correct, is that you do you are interested in the role played by genes and DNA on things like intelligence. So if you could just explain why you aren't a eugenicist in the way that people have branded you, but why you are interested in those mm-hmm. areas of work. That okay. Um, so yeah, I, I um, wrote a piece for an Australian periodical called Quadrant in 2015. Um, and it was about um, meritocracy mm-hmm. and what I think of as one of the problems um, meritocracy has many problems but one of the problems is um or one of the risks anyway in a meritocratic society is that um it descends into a biological caste system um and uh that's quite a complicated argument to make it's an argument that my father made in the rise of the meritocracy it's an argument that richard hernstein and charles murray made in the bell curve and it's been made by other critics of meritocracy and the idea is that um in a society in which um uh, merit which my father defined as iq plus effort is the sole determinant of status um given that um iq is in part inherited um and you know we can argue about uh, how heritable it is and reversion to the mean, to a certain extent, undercuts this um, tendency. But nonetheless, what you see happening in advanced meritocratic societies, or what my father feared would happen, and what Hansen and Murray claimed was happening in America, is that um, as the meritocracy matures, um, so um, uh, people who are of above-average intelligence uh, are more likely to... um, uh, couple up and have children and whilst those children uh, on average aren't going to be uh, as intelligent as them they're going to be nonetheless also on average above average Um, and what that means is you get this kind of sorting mechanism which gradually imposes on what appears initially to be a very open and fair and fluid society this kind of biological caste system mm. and it's certainly true in america if you look at uh, you know there's plenty of evidence that, that it's, it's begun to happen though interestingly um uh, there's a, a recent book by a couple of sociologists um uh, claiming it isn't happening um but um i said um 
okay, whether it's happening or not, and I think it is happening, sooner than we think, it's going to become possible um, for um, couples who want to have particularly intelligent children to fertilize a range of embryos um, in a genetics lab or a fertility clinic. Um, and once we know more about um, the various uh, genes linked to IQ and other qualities, and we are beginning to know more and more every day, you know, huge data sets are telling us uh, more and more about which genes are linked with different behavioral traits. Um, once we know enough, it'll be possible uh, for couples who want to take advantage of this new knowledge um, to have these various embryos tested and to implant and bring to term that one which is likeliest to have uh, the highest intelligence. Um, now, you know, we saw in China um, last year uh, with the first um, uh, gene-edited baby mm. born um, that this kind of technology is not 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 very far in, not very far ahead of us in the future. Um, my my argument was when this technology comes on stream, which I think you know, inevitably will, um, it's going to be used by the already very rich and very successful. Um, to give their children an even bigger head start than they currently enjoy simply in virtue of coming from these extraordinarily privileged backgrounds. And that's going to exacerbate inequality. Inequality is going to get worse by an order of magnitude once this technology comes on stream. It's going to be difficult to regulate because even if you ban its use in, say, the United Kingdom, it'd be hard to ban its use in China or Hong Kong or Singapore or Taiwan. You know, it's going to be hard to do it on a global scale. Mm. Um, so what can we do about this likely exacerbation of inequality? Um, and I suggested that one thing you might be able to do once this technology comes on stream would be to make it available to the least well-off on the NHS and in other you know, socialised health services elsewhere uh, for free. Uh, I wasn't suggesting it should be mandatory. Um, and I wasn't suggesting, I was suggesting the opposite yeah. of sterilizing, you know, the least well off. I was saying, give them fertility treatment for free, which they can take advantage of to give their own children a leg up in the same way that rich people are going to be using that technology to give their children a leg up. And in that way, you can reduce, you can mitigate to a certain extent. Um, and you can try and ban its use for everyone other than you know, the least well off and try and in that way, try and mitigate the impact of this. And you know, it was a million miles away mm. from what people common, commonly think of as eugenics. I wasn't proposing, you know, the sterilization of the poor or the mentally handicapped or homosexuals or anything like that. It was actually what I thought of as a progressive measure to try and mitigate what was likely to be worsening inequality as a result of this new tech coming on stream, which it undoubtedly will. Uh, but, you know, we, no one bothered to kind of think about... No, one, I don't think anyone read the piece. Mm. Um, the nuance of the argument, you know, was completely ignored. People like um, Caroline Lucas um, put forward early day motions in the House of Commons saying, you know, with his horrific <laughs> views on eugenics, why is Toby serving on the Office for Students? Polly Toynbee, you know, with his, with his appalling eugenic views why is toby young involved in education it was just total nonsense but really hard to kind mm. of uh, make people listen 
and understand it, that I wasn't actually, you know, Dr. Mengele. Yes, I thought it was a very good example. I mean, it, it, it was similar to when people say Nazi, fascist, alt-right. It's, it's the, the word eugenicist was used to try and shut down that discussion. And there is a very kind of... Um, anti-intellectual censorious climate around the whole question of genes yep. and what role they might play and i think that is a problem i think um, academics writers thinkers everybody should be completely at liberty to discuss the possibility of genetic influence on behavior and opportunity and and intelligence and so on um but i still have a problem which is um i have a number of problems but the, one of them is that um one of the points that critics in the u.s make off uh, the idea of a kind of uh, biological hierarchy is that they will argue that, in fact, what happens is that um, biology, whatever we mean by biology, biology often maps itself onto social experience. So, mm -hmm. you know, if there's a difference between blacks and whites, it might mm -hmm. be less to do with biology and biological inheritance, for example, than it is to do with social opportunity, social experience, um, social origins, and so on. So, And I'm sure you'll be aware of that. But one, one issue I have, and I, I really wanted to ask you about this, is that uh, one issue I have with the current culture war, as it's uh, currently constituted, is that on one side you have this kind of blank slate thesis, mm -hmm. which is a pretty crude description, but we all know what it means, which is this idea that everyone is born completely blank, um, completely equal, uh, and then we are shaped and determined by social experiences, parenting, the media, the patriarchy, and all these other things, which then apparently mm -hmm. determine how women behave, how men behave, and yep. so on. I have a problem with that. But then I worry that the response to that from the kind of anti-PC, um, uh, evolutionary psychology, Toby Young school, yep. <laughs> Quillette school, I guess, yep. uh, actually makes a similar argument from a different perspective. So the argument then becomes, in fact, we're not blank slates. We are born with pre certain genetic predispositions in terms of character and outlook and talent and intelligence and so on. And my concern, I guess, is that both of them, what they share in common is something very important, which is that we are not as much masters of our fate as we thought we were. Mm -hmm. And and that's the element of this that worries me, because if you think, you know, the great idea of the Renaissance, I guess, and then through to the Enlightenment was precisely that um, mankind can master his fate. One of the Renaissance writers who said through the through the deployment of intelligence and will, mankind can defeat fate. Mm -hmm. That was the great breakthrough idea. Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder if uh, both uh, if we're caught in this tussle between the idea that we are socially determined to a certain extent or genetically determined to a certain extent. And I know that neither side say that we are fully determined by those things, but we are partially. Are we losing sight of the old humanist argument that um, even the poorest, uh, most downtrodden um, person in the most difficult origins imaginable has it within his or her capacity to reshape the way he thinks, the way he acts, and the way he lives? So you've covered quite a lot of ground um, <laughs> in that question. I would begin by saying when members of the intellectual dark web um, like Jordan Peterson talk about um, the uh, evolutionary origins of hierarchies in human societies and indeed in lobster societies, mm. um, uh, <laughs> that's often heard by people on the social justice left as a social Darwinist justification for the status quo. Um, with all the horror that implies. 
um, and a point that many members of the IDW have been at pains to make um, is that merely describing something um, and explaining how something came about by appealing to uh, the human sciences like the behavioral sciences like evolutionary psychology, behavioral genetics, sociobiology, Darwinian anthropology, and so forth, um, you are not actually defending mm. um, uh, what is. You're just describing it, and you're not saying that because this is the way it is, this is the way it ought to be. Mm. People in the IDW are not committing the naturalistic fallacy. It's people on the social justice left who are committing that fallacy. And one of the ways in which they commit the fallacy is to imagine that if you assert that um, there are some differences, some human differences, um, that are um, hardwired um, uh, uh, to do with our natures um, and to do with our different capacities at birth and that we're not born as blank slates, they fear, because they commit the naturalistic fallacy, that that will invalidate the kind of equal rights, equal treatment, equal opportunities agenda. They think that if you can show, for instance that there are uh, some differences between men and women. If you defend, for instance, the um, uh, greater human variability hypothesis, which posits that um, the cognitive distribution curve is flatter for women than it is for men, and you have more men at either tail, so more very stupid men and more very smart men yeah. than women. Uh, and there's, you know, there's a substantial weight of evidence to show that that is true. Um, uh, it, it, there is this fear uh, by members of the social justice left that if you uh, defend hypotheses like that, that you're actually saying women shouldn't have equal rights. And the point that yeah. Pinker and Peterson and countless others make endlessly, but it always seems to fall on deaf ears, is that um, no, you make the moral case for equal rights. And we all believe in equal rights, equal treatment, equal opportunity. We embrace the civil rights agenda. We embrace the feminist agenda. We are not trying to roll back the clock on any of those gains made by liberals in the 20th century. Um, uh, we embrace the whole of that, but you don't have to appeal to the idea, the blank slate hypothesis in mm. order to defend all those gains. Um, but I think where it gets a bit murkier is that um, if you if you do um, if you're not um, a blank slatist and you think that some psychological differences are partly genetically based, um, uh, uh, and if you think that um, we are born with some you know default apps which predispose us to behave in particular ways, um, that um, I think that does place important limits on what you can reasonably expect to achieve politically mm. in a liberal society. I don't think it places anything like the limits that people on the social justice left imagine it does. I don't think it means that you have to therefore embrace a kind of Randian kind of fundamental free market. I think that social democracy, as practiced in Sweden, is completely compatible with a kind of mature and scientifically literate understanding of human nature. So it doesn't place limits on what's possible within liberal democratic societies. Um, but it does mean that various projects, which I think of as having come out of the Enlightenment, like utopian socialism, um, uh, may not be possible to achieve without 
substantially curtailing mm. human freedom in a way which most people, if they understood that that was a cost, would reject. So I think that's one reason. It's partly because they think the whole liberal rights agenda is contingent on the blank slate hypothesis, that they're very unwilling to give it up, but partly because I think instinctively they recognise that if the blank slate isn't true, um, then we have to, as Kant said, devise political institutions which um, allow for the fact that we are a nation of devils, not a nation of angels. And if you create these institutions uh, uh, and you embark on these projects, which are contingent upon human beings behaving well uh, and, and always listening to their better angels or on the belief that they can be completely molded into kind of uh, these new citizens um, who are, aren't going to be in any way um, uh, affected by the desire for competition or dominance and are not going to be aggressive in the way that they have been dating back to you know the dawn of time. If you imagine that mankind can be completely remoulded by institutions, then you know, you're know you on a hiding to nothing and you're going to end up with Cambodia yeah. or China under Mao's Cultural Revolution. Yeah, uh, yeah, I see all that. And I, I don't doubt for a minute that most of the kind of good, decent, uh, thoughtful members of the intellectual dark web do very strongly believe in equality and and many of the gains of the 1960s in fact they believe in those things often more than the sjws who see themselves as the heirs yeah, to that if you just take martin luther king's principle that people yeah. should be judged by the content of their character and not the color of their skin yeah that is you know a nostrum of the intellectual dark web it is not a nostrum of the social justice left as you pointed out earlier You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast and Spike's other podcasts, and also the articles and essays that Spike publishes every day, please think about giving us a donation. Spike's content is free, and we want to keep it free, and donations really help us to do that. Head over to Spike's donation page now at www.spiked-online.com. The thing that still concerns me, I guess, is that I think both sides um, emphasise uh, the need for a kind of remoulding. So the SJW side, which we, we can all agree is not a particularly useful, all-encompassing term for the kind of people we're talking about, but that kind of left-leaning side, as they see themselves, uh, sees the remoulding as having to come through um, challenging masculinity in young boys, for example, or banning certain adverts so that people don't become rapacious and crazy, or going into the universities and changing the way in which you educate people and what you encourage them to read. And it's all driven by this sense that, by the blank slate thesis, which means not only that uh, do they have this kind of slightly utopian view that everyone is born the exact same, but also it means that they believe we're very moldable mm -hmm. and that we can just be treated like putty so they have this very authoritarian view of the human capacity but I, I i sometimes fear that i see or hear rather echoes of that in the pushback against that culture which then suggests well probably a better way to mold people is to investigate the possibility of genetic editing or to think about um, creating institutions which will hold at bay inevitable evolutionary and tribal traits. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm worried about the way in which both sides emphasize an element of either molding or control or institutionalization over what I would consider to have been, uh, you know, the, the kind of small p progressive view of the past, which is that uh, people have it within their capacity to govern their life regardless of 
what their ancestors did hundreds of thousands of years ago, or regardless of whether their parents beat them every day until they were seven years old. So both of those positive views that you can overcome nature and nurture um, seems to have disappeared. Uh, so, and one issue I have, because when, when the genetic... Um, Genetic determinism is unfair. I appreciate that because I know people will always say it's not genes alone. There are other contributory factors to what makes a human being. But when that idea really started to become fashionable again in, in the 1970s, I guess, and then through to, to today, one of the critiques that was made of it was that it appeared as a kind of almost religious style, all-encompassing explanation for something which is incredibly difficult to understand, which is why human beings are what they are and why they behave the way they behave. That's something we all struggle to explain. Do you think there's a possibility that both sides in the current culture wars are looking for a convenient, all-encompassing explanation for something which just might be rather too mysterious for us to be able to understand? Robert Plowman. Um, the doyen of behavioural geneticists, a professor at uh, King's College London, wrote a book um, called Blueprint, which was published last year, um, summarising the kind of state of knowledge in behavioural genetics. Um, and partly because he chose the title Blueprint, he had the mantle of genetic determinist foisted upon him. But he is actually um, at pains throughout the book um, to um, make the point that um, the fact that um, our behavior is influenced by our genes and that many important life-changing traits like conscientiousness, agreeableness, intelligence, and so forth are at least 50% heritable um, has a probabilistic effect on how we behave, but not a deterministic effect. And the example he gives is that he has what's called a high polygenic risk score for obesity. So he has the various genes and subsets of genes associated with obese people. Um, but that doesn't mean he has no choice but to be obese. And it doesn't mean that on learning this, he should just surrender himself to his genetic fate. He's not obese. And even though his polygenic risk score for obesity is, you know, up there in the 70th plus percentile, that doesn't mean that you know his destiny is written in stone. I mean, I think it, it just—I think it, I think of it more not as um, uh, encouraging a kind of fatalism, which is comparable to the fatalism of the social justice left um, uh, on the right. Um, I just think of it as as giving us a framework which enables us to better understand not only what's politically, realistically possible, but what the likely costs are of trying to pursue various utopian projects, whether of the right mm. or the left. I th yes, I think um, what's interesting to me in relation to what you've just said about Plowman, whose, whose work is incredibly interesting, um, is, um, I guess, the question of emphasis. Because you could easily argue that there is genetic influence on how people turn out and how they behave and what, and what they believe and what they become. Um, but then you could respond to that by emphasizing the role of free will in doing exactly what Plowman seems to have done with the p potential tendency to obesity, which is to defeat that and mm -hmm. to overcome it and to refuse to surrender to it. Uh, so I, I do worry about the downplaying of free will, whether, whether it's in relation to supposedly patriarchal structures or 
white philosophy or anything else that apparently yeah. controls us and or uh, in relation to the gen- genetic stuff now i know it's much it is more nuanced than that in certain things but you're sort of assu- you're sort of saying it's bad because if people say we don't have any free will then we're less likely to exercise our free will but it might be that actually those two things aren't connected and how much free will we can exercise is something that's beyond our control and isn't like you're sort of almost set you're almost kind of accepting the premise of um, the kind of socialist left that these currents and discourses fundamentally um, uh, dictate our self-understanding and our behavior when actually the kind of lesson of um, the behavioral sciences is that their influence is much smaller yeah. than you think. Just just on, on, on the, um, uh, the conviction by the social justice left um, that um, these various malign forces are shaping human behavior i don't think that's just um something they have taken from you know the tradition of progressive left-wing thought dating back to the enlightenment um i also think there's a kind of element of magical thinking in there and it's also it, it's a it's a manifestation of the primitive religious aspects of the social justice left so for instance the idea of stereotype threat stereotype threat maintains that the reason say a teenage girl underperforms in a maths test is because her male maths teacher has a stereotype in his head uh, whereby boys are better than girls at maths. And this explains why there are fewer women um, in leadership positions in tech companies like Google uh, and fewer women doing STEM subjects, fewer tenured professors, female tenured professors and so forth. But actually, stereotype threat is one of those um, uh, psychological um, uh, uh, nostrums that um, has failed the replication crisis. And um, it looks like it's just not real. It's just a figment, literally a figment of people's imagination. But the idea of unconscious bias is another good example. Again, um, hasn't fared well in the current kind of uh, more rigorous, more scientifically rigorous uh, environment in psychology. Quite hard to stand up. The implicit association test is notoriously unreliable. The evidence that unconscious bias is um, having this kind of terribly negative impact on outcomes for women and minorities and so forth is threadbare. And again, it's this somehow this belief that there is this kind of malignant force which is controlling people. One of the awful things about this magical thinking on the left is that there are these outcome disparities which we should be concerned about. You know, in some cases, women aren't as well represented as they should be. Um, Some ethnic minorities aren't performing as well as they might be. And, you know, the reasons for that are multifactorial and you know, unless we abandon this magical thinking that it's all to do with stereotype threat, yeah. unconscious bias, systematic racism and sexism, the patriarchy and so forth, unless we, you know, those things clearly aren't the sole determinants of these outcome discrepancies. And if you continue to obsess about them and just focus all your energy on trying to get rid of those things, you're not going to solve the problem. If you really care about outcome disparities and minorities and women not doing as well as they should be and not being as well represented as they might be, then let's find out the real reasons and actually do something about it and not come up with these invented magical reasons, which somehow involve blaming demons inside white people. Yes, uh, I agree with all of that. Uh, My concern, I guess, is the 
the, the possibility that some of those um, uh, ridiculous claims about demons, psychological demons or patriarchal demons or social demons, find uh, replication in the pushback, but it becomes more, not necessarily genetic demons, but genetic influences. So, so that's my concern, uh, which I will no doubt be concerned about for, for much more time to come. But uh, in relation to the free will issue, uh, where you say, you know, maybe I'm suggesting that the kind of uh, diminution of free will has this kind of controlling impact on how then people conceive of themselves. I think that it's possible that the downplaying of free will in contemporary society, I don't think it determines how people see themselves, but I think it acts as an invitation to irresponsibility. So Plowman, for example, doesn't excuse his lifestyle by saying I have a tendency to obesity, but we know that many other people do. Um, and I think one of the uh, worrying trends about today is that people will often say, well, I can't help being fat, it's in my genes, or I can't help failing to get a job, I just don't have the right uh, uh, apt or they will say on the flip side I can't help being a woman who's not in science because it freezes me out with its I I implicit bias so there is this a tendency to excuse making which I think does spring from the devaluing of the idea of free will which is the idea that even in the most difficult circumstances you can master your fate if you genuinely choose to what you're claiming which is that um, the downgrading of free will has a negative impact on people's performance because if they think of themselves as lacking agency, they're likely to make less effort and not do anything to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. That's a testable um, empirical hypothesis. And insofar as it has been tested, it's been found to be false. So a good example is um, growth mindset. So there is this kind of fad, this all-conquering current fad in education, uh, which stretches across the Western world and into the developing world, this belief um, that um, uh, people, children who believe that their ability is fluid and that how they do is intimately bound up with how much effort they make and whether they think of themselves as the agents of their own life story, the authors of their own life story that those children are going to do better than the children who take a more fatalistic attitude and who think of mental cognitive ability as fixed. There's the fixed mindset and the growth mindset. Some initial experiments were done 20 more years ago, seeming to show, but with tiny sample sizes and under dubious circumstances, seeming to show that people with a growth mindset outperform those with a fixed mindset. Actually, it's been incredibly hard to replicate those experiments. And if you see the meta-analyses of all the research in the mindset field, the effect of growth mindset is tiny. I mean, it's not statistically insignificant, but it's negligible. Well, that's interesting because I guess one of the responses people might have to being told that that's who you are, stay there, it's all fixed, you can't do much about it, might actually be to grate against that and say, well, screw you, I'm going to show you different, which I guess speaks to precisely the unpredictability of human behavior. But Sorry, just because, one, one final yes. point on, the, on, okay. the, on, on your, your, your seeming uh, attachment to mindset theory is that it does <laughs> lead people, it, does, it can lead to very harsh judgments being made of people who are not performing well. You think, well, you know, if ability isn't fixed and if it is intimately bound up with effort, then you're just not trying hard enough. And that's a kind of denial of other factors which may be at work. And if you overestimate people's ability to make their own luck 
and control their own destinies, then if they're not doing well, there is this tendency to unjustly blame them for that rather than other factors over which they might not have much control. Although I still do think it's worth saying to people, you should try bloody hard. Toby Young, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back next month with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. See you next month. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try.